Lords of the Limited is proud to be brought to you in part by StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs, as well as our first return guest ever on Lords of Limited. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ryan Sachs to the floor. Hey, hey. We got all the Star City Games Limited boys on one podcast today. <laughs> We're going to smash it. Watch out, world. Really, really looking forward to having you back on the show. Ryan, how's it going? It's going quite well. Uh, very, very busy at the moment. My thesis is uh, due next week, and I'll be done with grad school, which is very exciting. But I've still been making time for some Ultimate Masters, which I've been having such a blast playing. So here's the question, and we may know this by the time this episode is released. Do we think that Ryan's tweet is going to work? Are we going to get an extended week of Ultimate Masters? Oh God, I hope so. Oh, me too. I'm, I'm praying. I mean, I mean, Magic Online did respond and said they're talking about it, so we'll see. Fingers crossed. That was the most like butt scooch that I've ever had when I saw that <laughs> tweet. I was like, it worked? We might actually get it? Um, so obviously the three of us are having a bit of a love affair with Ultimate Masters, so maybe we should check in on the trophy leaderboard before we launch into the rest of the episode. How are things going with you, Ben? Uh, I'm now 17 drafts in, have six trophies, a 36 and 12 overall record, and still holding strong at a 75% win rate. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm bringing up the rear today. I have 26 drafts, eight trophies, 55 and 23. I had my first 03 the other day, which was real sad. So I'm down to a 71% win rate. Ryan, you're not doing too well with this format, are you? No, you know, I don't I don't think it's really uh, clicking with me. I have uh, 24 drafts under my belt with 14 trophies. I'm 58 and 11 for a solid 84% win rate. That is insane. And that's like, I mean, it's not a large sample size, but that's large enough to be like, there's there's nothing fluky happening here. Like you definitely have a monster hold on this format. I kept expecting to start losing. Uh, <laughs> you know, it just like it just I kept, never happened. <laughs> it just it just didn't. It just just never happened. Eventually, you know, I've had I've had streaks like this before. Um, the only time it's lasted this long was in Amonkhet, where like my last 100 matches or so of Amonkhet, I lost less than 20 of them. But it, it, it's very rare, and it, it is encroaching on the point where you know it's less of a fluke and less of luck and more that the format just clicks with me or at least i'm hoping that because i just bought my ticket to vancouver <laughs> that's amazing i love that that you're just like well i'm crushing this format too much so i gotta go play the gp yeah i mean it was one of those things that i wasn't planning on going but it'll be a nice like vacation to after to sort of celebrate the semester and the end of the end of school and it was one of the, it feels to me like it's just it, going to be my, the best edge that I'll ever have in a tournament. Yeah, no, I hear that for sure. I definitely think it'll be a, a great move for all those counts. A nice reward for you at the end of, of this trying semester. Um, all right. So we have a really exciting show coming up for you guys. I've been wanting to do this for a while. You know, I was going to write an article about this, but then, and I was messaging Ryan about it and it felt like there was just too much to discuss and that probably a discussion rather than a written piece was a better platform for this. And that is we're going to be talking about aggro decks today, baby. Going ham, getting in the red zone. We've talked for 76 episodes about Dirtle, so we figure one episode <laughs> about aggro would be good to just throw in the mix. And I can't really think of a better person to have on the show to talk about this than Ryan. But before we get into any of that, got to talk about the Patreon, baby. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, the place to get back to the show if you so choose you know, the holidays are around the corner, Christmas time coming up. I can't think of a better gift 
a donation in someone's name to the Lords of Limited Patreon if you want. But seriously, folks, if you want to get in on some good limited discussion, throw back some money to the podcast, get in on the Lords of Limited Discord. We're talking about Ultimate Masters. We'll be talking about Vintage Cube. We'll be talking about the next Ravnica set as it comes out. Beginning of the format, that's where you want to be to get in on the Discord. We got some higher tier rewards as well if you want to give back a little bit more than just a dollar per episode. All that can be found at patreon.com slash Lords of Limited. We've got too much to discuss on the show today for me to blab on a bit more about the Patreon today, but I do want to make sure we shout out each and every person the first week that they join. So we've got a few folks to welcome back to the fold. I want to welcome Brian Thomas, Brian Todd, Tom, Nicole, Travis, Chris, Kenny, and Eric. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate your support. Cannot say thank you enough. Merry Christmas to all of you patrons out there that are supporting the podcast. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we're going to get into our main topic right away. Agro decks, not my forte. So we really needed to have someone else to come on to talk us straight about this. And there's a lot to get into, a lot of like general thoughts, and we'll get into some, some more specifics. But I just really want to sort of give you the reins this week um, to sort of lead us through this this topic that I know you feel very passionately about. So so why don't you take it away for us? Sure. Uh, well, aggro decks are my favorite way to play this game. It's not actually particularly close. Will I dirtle? Absolutely. I had my fair share of devious cover-up looping in Guilds of Ravnica draft. But my my favorite thing to do is to turn creatures sideways. Uh, I think we've, we've talked about this uh, a little bit uh, before where I view one of my greatest strengths in this game as combat math across multiple turns, which really does award aggressive decks. And we'll talk sort of about how to uh, get better at doing that and why that's so important for aggressive decks later. Um, I think the real important thing to understand when considering an aggro deck is that the way that you value cards changes. Adrian Sullivan in 1999, I believe, came up with a concept that was later coined by Mike Flores as the philosophy of fire. And this is the concept that there is value in the exchange of cards for life. You can see this a lot more commonly in Constructed, like Burn in Modern, where they're playing cards like Lava Spike. And we actually have Lava Spike in Ultimate Masters, and it's not particularly a good card. <laughs> it, it doesn't affect the board at all. And you know, one card for three life is not something we really think about in the context of Limited. But if all of your cards deal three damage, that means if you cast seven spells, you win the game. And so understanding this philosophy that it can be worthwhile to exchange cards for life uh, is a really key component to understanding aggressive decks. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You linked that article in our show notes here and I had a chance to read it. And it, you know, it's not something that I haven't thought about before in terms of like, I feel like a lot of times talking about aggressive decks, I know you've said this to me before on stream that like, you can think about card advantage as if your opponent gets cards stranded in their hand when the game is over, that that's a form of card advantage, right? Like being able to, you cast all your spells, your opponent's left with four or five cards in their hand because they haven't been affecting the board enough or whatever, or you've just come out the gate too fast. All of that is a form of quote unquote card advantage that aggressive decks have. And I feel like that is something I understand in my head, but perhaps don't apply enough in game, you know? Yeah, it's, it's a hard concept to abstract, really. Like the playing of a game where you don't usually think about, oh, my opponent had five cards in hand when the game ended, but that that's a huge advantage. <laughs> um, you know, five cards is a lot of cards and does happen a fair amount with aggro decks. In fact, one of the reasons why Wild Mongrel is such a powerful card is because of the way it lets you end the game so quickly and use your cards as a resource as sort of a last fury. Um, in Ultimate Masters, I think one of the reasons why I've had so much success is I'm playing a lot of Wild Mongrel decks and I'm ending the game with my opponent at zero 
and me with zero cards in hand because I'm able to turn each of those cards into sequences of damage with Wild Mongrel and use my resources in a way that most decks don't really get to do. Stranding cards in your opponent's hand, uh, not even just by the end of the game, but throughout the game is something that aggressive decks really do well, where sometimes in order to turn the corner against an aggressive deck, you need to be able to cast your spells in a specific sequence. And that can be very hard if you need to play defensively. So if an aggressive deck really comes out of the gate, not only can you win and strand cards in their hand, but you can force your opponent to play in a way that's suboptimal for the way that they've designed their deck. So I would love to talk about a number of things on this episode because I have a lot of questions. But one of the things that I'm just sort of interested from your perspective, because I know this is your favorite way to play limited, can you just speak a bit more about what it is about these decks that appeals to you in terms of maybe the decisions you have during drafting or in deck building or in gameplay that that makes you go because i know you're a very smart individual and so i assume you're playing this difficult game to test your intelligence or to exercise parts of your brain and i feel like there are things about aggressive decks that make me feel like i don't get to do that or i don't get to feel as smart as i'd like when i feel like i'm spinning my wheels with my multicolor good stuff decks so what about aggressive decks appeal to you so i think that uh the the first thing i want to address is the fact that Oh, and, and I think this is the case for a lot of players. They feel like as a strong player, you gain a larger edge playing a deck steered towards late game because there are more places to make decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have a lot more opportunity to leverage your skill. And I think that's for the most part a fallacy. You know, it, it, it does have the, the thought does have merit. However, aggressive decks have a large amount of decisions. They're simply compounded to the early turns. So the game might be over by turn five, but each turn you've had, you know, six decisions to make. You've had to decide between three two drops on two and and a variety of other ways to attack, whether you're throwing away creatures in combat, whether you're not, whether you're saving a combat trick or not. These decisions are all really important. And because aggressive decks don't have the staying power in the late game, you can get really, really punished for making a mistake in the early game simply by playing the wrong two drop on turn two. So I think there's a lot to leverage in high skill in aggressive decks. It's just not really thought about because the game ends so quickly. And so they feel a bit like autopilot when they're doing their thing. But I assure you that that's not really the case most of the time. The big observation of why uh, aggressive decks appeal to me during draft is that they can be successful with 100% commons. And that's rarely the case for other archetypes. So when you have a deck that's aimed towards the late game, you need powerful spells. You need powerful creatures to end the game. And aggressive decks don't actually need that. They need a good curve with creatures that are reasonable, but you know, a bear can sometimes just get the job done. And that's rarely the case for other strategies. Um, so it really appeals to me that I can wheel cards that I actively want for my deck at a higher frequency when playing an aggressive deck. Yeah, the first time I felt like I experienced this idea of like taking a card and then wheeling a card out of a pack, which really, if you can do that consistently, if you get that number of playables, if you have that like density of playables to pick between when you're building your deck and then when you have that density of playables to pick between when you're sideboarding between matches that can really elevate the power level of the deck. I feel like the first time I heard about that was when like the spider spawning deck was discovered in Innistrad when you're like, well, I can take this 
this one card that everyone wants, but then I'm going to wield this junker that no one should want, but I know this deck wants, like Runic Repetition or Memory's Journey or whatever. Um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that with the, the aggro decks with these density of commons that the deck often has at its disposal. And you have in, in the show notes written here this idea about like taking quote unquote bad cards during the draft. I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit and how you feel that that, that plays into this this strategy in Limited. Right. Well, it's one of the reasons why um, they, they can be so viable is that I am actively interested in playing a two mana two two, if I need it for my curve and an aggressive deck, and I would argue that most less less aggressive oriented decks would just rather play a another card. They just not include it in their deck and have a slightly worse curve. But you can't really afford to do that in aggressive decks, and so you get to play with the dregs of limited a little bit more, which means that there are cards that you want that you can wheel, which we've we've already pointed out, and it, it can be a little hard to navigate the draft with this in mind because. All, most limited players are looking at this, you know, bear or two mana two one with some generic upside and saying it's a bad card. I don't want to include it in your deck. But it's the collection of all of these cards together that really creates a potent strategy that kills your opponent very quickly. Yeah. So I have a follow up to that. Like the card that springs to mind for that from Guilds of Ravnica that uh, you know I think Ethan and I both think is not very good. That I think you're very willing to play and put in your decks is Gird for Battle. Oh, I love that card. I know, right? So I think that like boils down to the heart of this issue, like. I really don't want to put a Gird for Battle in my deck, and I don't think Ethan does particularly either. No, it's actually after our episode on Boros, Ryan messaged us on Discord and was like, Ethan, you talked about Gird for Battle like you didn't like it. Is that true? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> so so in your mind, like, why is Gird for Battle a good card in an aggressive deck? Because I, I would be loath to put a Gird for Battle even in my my red-white aggressive decks. Uh, it, it's actually kind of similar to the concepts related to the philosophy of fire, right? I'm spending a card that is likely enabling an attack. That is that is what it is doing. If Gird for Battle for one mana lets me get in for four damage, right? That is a potentially large advantage. And especially in Guilds of Ravnica specifically, where it can enable an attack with a mentor creature, sometimes it's adding three power on creatures with that already have power to get in for even more chunks of damage, like eight. And for one mana, that kind of effect just, you you don't get it. Um, and so it's an irreplaceable effect to be able to, for that amount of mana, generate that amount of attack potential is the way that I would put it, which is why I really like it in the deck, especially because of how it curves well with Healer's Hawk, because any way to turn that card into a 2-2 is premium in my opinion. So when you're thinking about a card like Gird for Battle, I feel like Ben and I maybe as, and I, I think you are too, like we're all sort of children of limited resources in terms of like coming up on the concepts that they have sort of hit home week after week after week. And one of those being quadrant theory. And I think a lot of the times when I, you know, started to evaluate cards on my own, I put it under that lens of like, how, when is this card good at, at developing parity when I'm ahead, when I'm behind and Gird for Battle. Yeah, I can see a pretty high ceiling on that card, but I also see a really low floor on that card as well. Now, when I'm looking at drafting an aggro deck in limited, should I be ignoring that low floor and really focusing on that high ceiling? Should I be trying to look at cards under a different kind of lens? Does Quadrant Theory go out the window? So Quadrant Theory doesn't go out the window, but it does change. The quadrant of when you're ahead matters a lot more in aggressive decks. Most of the limited decks, when you're evaluating card, you're like, well, it's good when it's ahead, but you know, if I'm ahead, I'm winning, right? Right. So that, that category gets the least amount of weight. Yes. But in aggressive decks, because once you start falling behind, your cards rarely will help you come back from behind. 
The reason why cards that are good when ahead are highly valued is because they completely close the door with your for your opponent to come back. The The window of the game is so much smaller, right? You want to end the game by turn six in limited if you're playing an aggressive deck, or at least make it so that your opponent really can't change it around. Or if they do, they're at two life and you can direct current their face or something along those lines. So cards that are good when ahead let you keep pressing your advantage because you will start the game ahead. And that is something that nobody really talks about. And it does change the lens of of, uh, of quadrant theory. It's why cards like Falter or Cosmotronic Wave for Guilds of Ravnica end up being very, very important. They, When you're ahead, the game, the game is over. Your opponent is trying to stabilize, but they have no hope because you will be able to alpha strike. And the awesome thing about Falter effects is they can definitely win the game at parity, um, which is which is pretty huge. But they're completely dead when behind for the most part. And that's less important in an aggressive deck because you want every single one of your cards to press your advantage when you're ahead to snowball to end the game as early as possible. And so if we if we back up a little bit, like if you can put like there's some other cards that spring to mind from Guilds of Ravnica. So can you put on your your new aggressively slanted quadrant theory? So GERD for battle versus maniacal rage versus candlelight vigil because like i'm not thrilled about any of those cards but i think there are different degrees of goodness right can you speak to how each of those cards sort of functions in boros sure uh so i have if i were to rank those cards and i think there's a reasonable gap between each of them it is gird for battle is better than maniacal rage which is better than candlelight vigil essentially the thing it comes down to is damage output really gird for battle has a very high potential for a very low cost for a really high degree of damage output. Maniacal Rage often isn't going to enable attack with more than one creature. Sometimes you can you can sort of nab their blocker with it, which is cool. But overall, it opens the door to, um, to be two for one in a way that, that isn't worth the amount of mana that you put in for the amount of damage that you get most of the time. And when you go up to Candlelight Vigil, four mana is simply too much for an effect like that. The real reason Gird for Battle is awesome is because it is one mana. It lets you go something like two drop on turn two into two drop, Gird both of them, enable an attack with my guy. So it gets in for three, which I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And now I have two threats that can currently attack on the board. Right. That makes sense. And then, and then where do, where do combat tricks stack up in that equation? Like is take heart, you know, better than all of those cards is take heart somewhere in between Gird and maniacal rage because that a combat trick can sort of leverage, you know, let you make attacks and maybe your opponent doesn't block. And then you don't even have to spend the mana. Sure. I have take heart and combat tricks like that above maniacal rage and below good for battle. There's something to note about combat tricks and aggressive decks, and this is where I think a lot of people make a mistake. I'm not looking to cast my combat trick early. If it's, you know, if I play a 2-2 and you play a 2-2 and I attack, I do not want to use my combat trick there because it doesn't really accomplish much. It kills your creature that could have traded with my creature, then maybe I play another creature, and that's that's fine. That's pretty good. But if it's taking my whole turn with something like a sure strike, I actively don't want to do that. Right. Whereas at least with a card like Gird for Battle, or in this case, Maniac Rage works too, the effect on it stays on the creature. And so it affects the board for multiple turns. And I would rather use a combat trick to force a much stronger attack. So Saving your combat tricks in order to attack with four creatures as opposed to attack with one creature is something to be really uh, aware of when you're piloting an aggro deck. Okay, so you are looking at cards like Gird for Battle or like Take Heart as like, how can I, and I think the reason you have Gird for Battle so far ahead of Maniacal Rage or Candlelight Vigil, you're talking about the amount of damage output that you can get 
from this single card, right? So like, that's why take heart with four creatures in play attacking is better than take heart with two or one creature. Exactly. Right. And mana cost is also a factor in there, right? The one mana. Yeah. I mean, one, one mana is certainly huge and, you know, one mana is so little and limited. You can almost always find a way to squeak it in. There's a huge difference between one and two here, mm-hmm. which is why I have take heart as better than sure strike, even though sure strike does work out to be a more powerful or better combat trick in a lot of combat scenarios. Now, how much does the mechanic of mentor factor into these cards? Like, do you think that Gird for Battle would have been a good card in red, white aggressive decks in M19 as well? Honestly, I'm, I'm not certain. I think it would be worse. One of the real reasons that I think Gird is so impactful in Boros is because attacking with a mentor creature, you can almost think of as some form of card advantage. Right, you are gaining. You 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 played your creature. You played your Wojek bodyguard, which is a three three for three, which you're happy to play. And once it puts a counter on something, like that's that's great. And if it puts a second counter on something, I mean that's a gird for battle, right? So the fact that gird for battle can mess up with combat a little bit and enable an attack with a mentor creature that would have traded and no longer will is an advantage that spans combat over multiple turns. Um, and that that's, you know, you get getting to press that kind of advantage on turn three, turn four is kind of unparalleled in the way that most limited games play out. The fact of the matter is the majority of limited decks are some form of mid-range. And this includes the aggressive decks that we're talking about for the most part. You do want to be able to play both the role as the beatdown or not. You're just slanting your game plan in these aggressive decks to assume you're the beatdown because that's how it should start. And so does your evaluation of all of these cards ultimately boil back to the philosophy of fire? For some part, yes. Although I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that that concept really is truly embraced in most games of limited for the thing that I just said about mid-range decks, right? Like even though I want to get damage output from the spells that I cast, I am not particularly interested in playing cards like Lava Spike or Lava Axe in most of my limited decks. Um, but I am trying to use cards that facilitate dealing damage. The way that I'm trying to use those cards to deal damage isn't direct damage, but it's through attacking because I want to play creatures that affect the board. So I'm still existing within this sort of cards that affect the board mentality, but I'm trying to include a variety of cards that really let me attack when I otherwise wouldn't be able to. And if we look at the archetypes in Guilds of Ravnica, like Boros, I think comes to mind certainly as an aggressive deck, but also I think a lot of flavors of Selesnya are aggressive decks and some is it 12 creature decks are aggressive decks. Are we thinking about these all in sort of the same lens or does your evaluation of cards, like would you also be happy with Gird for Battle in a Selesnya deck, that sort of thing? Or are we thinking about things in, in slightly different ways, like maybe a Cosmotronic Waves looks slightly better in is it because it cares about spells or, or something like that? So I uh, I mean, every deck has a, a slightly different texture that's going to make certain cards better or worse. And that's that's always going to be the case regardless of format. One of the reasons why Gerd is so good in Boros, as I've said, is Mentor. It sometimes makes a third counter. In Selesnya, that is less common, but it can happen. The card is quite good uh, with Parhelion Patrol, which is good in Selesnya. And I think those decks are often aggressively slanted. To talk about Izet, because I do think Izet is a different style of aggro deck, and it's important to talk about, is that decks in this format are somewhat interested in lava spikes, right? The cards that don't necessarily affect the board, but just deal damage. Gravitic Punch won a Grand Prix in this format, and I've played Gravitic Punch in a fine number of my Izzet decks, 
And that has to do with the the difference in the way that Izzet decks play towards normal aggressive decks in this specific format. So a really important concept, which I think most of uh, the people listening to this will be familiar with, is reach, right? If your opponent is at five, it gives cards like direct current a lot more context because sure, direct current can now deal damage to the player, which might end the game. You know, it doesn't deal five, it deals a total of four, um, but it gives extra context to these cards that you're already playing. And the Izzet decks have such a density of reach that honestly, you only really need to deal 12 to 15 damage and then your Sonic Assaults and your Gravitic Punches and your Lava Spike, Lava Axe cards will end the game. So it actually is a different kind of inevitability for aggro decks that you can be on the lookout when drafting. Sweet. Well, I think let's dive right into looking at drafting these decks. I'm going to take a look at like sort of the three sections of of playing limited and starting chronologically would look at, at drafting. And I just have a bunch of questions about how you draft these decks. And my first sort of starts even before you sit down to draft, but maybe looking at the spoiler or deciding what to do when you see the mechanics, that sort of thing. How do you identify when an aggressive strategy is viable or powerful in a format? Maybe that is your personal default, but like, are you looking for sort of components from the set as a whole or combos of cards? We talked about redundancy at common, that sort of thing. Absolutely. The first thing that I'll look at when looking at any set in order to evaluate how good I think the aggressive decks are, are the density of two drops in different colors. So two drops are the bread and butter of your aggressive decks. They're not necessarily the bread and butter of other limited decks. I will play any amount. I don't want to really play less than six in most of my aggressive decks. And I play 10, I'd play 12. Two mana, two twos, you know, you would like your bears to be a little bit more. You'd like to get some effect out of them. You know, like uh, Sunhome Stalwart is fantastic. It not only has first strike to make it better in combat, but it has mentor to really help press damage. The more kinds of two drops that do extra things, the more inclined I am to want to draft an aggressive strategy. Two drops tend to be premium because every limited deck does want to be able to be the beatdown and does want to be able to play two drops. And with that as the case, it means if there are few and far between two, like good quality two drops in the format, they're going to be even harder to get a density of. And that's the most important thing to have a density of. So that's the first thing that I look at. Um, following that, it's important to note what the tricks are it's important to note what the one mana tricks are because the one mana tricks let you cast your combat trick and a creature in the same turn way more often than other cards. And so if you don't have access to one mana tricks, it is going to make your aggro decks slightly less potent under most scenarios. And then lastly, the other important thing to really consider uh, with aggro decks is the relationship of auras to removal in the format. Um, a good example of this is Ixalan, where all of the removal was expensive and it made a card like One with the Winds a very, very potent enhancement to go onto your creatures. And that relationship of how good and cheap the removal is versus how much you know punch you get from your augmentation effects like auras, equipments, etc. is another thing to be aware of when looking at the set. So diving into a more specific context for that question, like we missed the boat pretty hard on red green aggro in our set review for ultimate masters. <laughs> did you see that as a deck coming in and did you know how good it was actually going to be? I was, I think red green aggro was the deck I was most excited for um, coming into this format, but I didn't think that it would look the way that it does. So for the context of people listening, um, red green in ultimate masters, you know, is generally understood as a madness strategy. 
um, where you're playing Wild Mongrels and Reckless Worms. However, I think the best version of this deck is a lot more like a beatdown deck with a combo finish. You're trying to play Soulfire and Double Cleave paired with combat tricks like uh, Become Immense to deal 20 damage out of nowhere in your aggressive deck. And one of the reasons why this is so potent, in my opinion, is because you're pressuring your opponent with your early creatures, they have to tap out. They have to play creatures to block. Unholy Hunger is not going to get this job done because I can just attack and not use my pump spells. Oh, you want to Unholy Hunger my other creature? Cool. Become immense, double cleave on the one that you didn't target. You're not casting it? Cool. I won't cast my spells. It forces your opponent in between a rock and a hard place, really, this, this specific deck. And that isn't something I truly identified but one of the reasons I was so excited about red-green was the sort of inclusion of two specific commons, which are Wild Mongrel and Arena Athlete. Wild Mongrel being able to deal a lot more damage than any two-drop really should be able to deal on its own, and Arena Athlete making your opponent have to play kind of scared about blocks and how both of those cards work really well with the ways to grant haste in anger and reckless charge can really swing a game. And so I, I did see the red-green aggro deck, and I think that as I drafted, I realized the way the pieces come together. And that's something to be aware of when drafting aggro decks, is that often it's really important to understand how many creatures your deck wants, what pump spells are good, because if you get the wrong mix of those things, you're simply more likely to fall behind, and aggressive decks are much worse at coming back from behind. When you get things wrong for the more mid-range late game decks in limited, you have a lot more powerful spells to play that can bring you back from behind, which aggressive decks don't get access to. Yeah, I feel like, and I'm kind of jumping the gun a little bit because this is a question I have when we get to deck building, but I feel like I can generally draft an aggro deck, but I'm not great at understanding putting the pieces together in the most optimal way. I think that's my biggest leak as an aggro player is figuring out like, okay, well, I have this pile of cards how does this puzzle fit together the best? Like, what's the number of creatures I want? What tricks do I want? What sort of, I don't know, falter effects do I want? What removal? What does my curve want to look like? Number of lands. It, it, that puzzle, again, because as we're talking about, like, you have fewer decisions with an aggro deck. So the decisions that you do make have the tendency to spiral out of control. And I feel like that can all start at deck building. And that decision is the most important for me. And I feel like I miss the mark a lot. And I know that this is a, such a general question and it's such a, a lot, a large question, but as you're going through the draft, what sorts of things make you think like, well, at this point I need a two drop at this point, I need the one mana combat trick at this point, I need this removal spell. Um, so the goal of an aggro deck when you're playing it, and this is relevant for when you're drafting it is to be able to overwhelm the board and overwhelm your opponent early on. If you draw a hand with multiple combat tricks and one creature and your opponent has a removal spell, you are going to lose that game. Mm -hmm. So the goal in drafting and deck building is to concoct a deck where it is probabilistic that you draw multiple threats and ways to push those threats to be able to deal damage. So is that in Guilds of Ravnica is the exception, but in general an aggro deck should play 15 to 18 creatures. Your creatures are your most important tool, but because they are lower power level than you know, other creatures you can play for five mana, since you aren't as interested in those kinds of cards, you need to accompany these 
with ways to push damage like falter effects as we've talked. There are a couple of heuristics that I can lay out um, that do depend on the deck, but are fairly consistent across formats. I have yet to find a format where I don't want to include the first copy of a, you know, creatures can't block, as we've been calling a falter effect in my aggro deck. I almost always want to have access to that effect. And the real reason for that is should, God forbid, the game come down to a board stall, you have an auto win in your deck, which is pretty huge. And as I said before, it helps you really press the advantage when you have it. Yes, it's bad when behind. It is okay to have some number of cards that are bad when behind in aggressive decks because the plan is not to be behind. Um, And I know that might sound a little odd because, well... Things don't always go according to plan. Sure, they don't. But if you build your deck to be able to come back from behind so much because you're concerned, what if things don't go well? You're decreasing the probability that things go well. So there's this balance. Right. Between... All, of a, all of a sudden, you're not an aggro deck. Exactly. And my mind is being blown a little bit right now. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm thinking about this in the like, this makes absolute sense. And I've never thought about this way before. Because like when I build my mid range or control decks in limited, I'm building them with finishers because I'm like, well, I'm going to get to the, like my plan is to get to the late game and like have this, whatever, this infinite loop or this way to con- continue to gain life or this bomb that I'm going to be able to resolve or whatever. Like I'm not playing with like, well, but what if the aggro deck beats me before I get to do that? Like, of course you don't build your deck that way. And it makes total sense that you build your aggro deck in the way of saying, well, like I'm going to be ahead because that's my deck's plan. Exactly. And like it, it, there's, there's a certain kind of optimism that is kind of required in deck building, right? Like if you're always going to be scared of what if this doesn't work out, well, you know what? We're playing a game with variance. Sometimes it doesn't work out and sometimes you lose, but you shouldn't play scared. And this will be really important when we get to, you know, talking about gameplay where you know, one of the key, just as a little teaser, one of the key things to understand in aggro deck is make them have it. Because if you don't make them have it, you are letting them get to the late game where your spells won't be relevant. I think that's that's definitely like, we've talked about this before, but those like level up moments of like, or not level up moments, but when you sort of level yourself, when you're like, okay, well, I realized they have, they could have this thing, they're holding up the mana for it. And like, now once you know that they have this thing, or they could have this thing, they're representing a counter spell or a trick or a removal spell, then do you play around it? Can you afford to play around it? That sort of thing. And it sounds like for you, for these kinds of decks, the answer is almost always no. Well, I mean, it's it's a really important thing to be able to evaluate. I will say that um, it's a thing that I watch people make mistakes about a lot because the general heuristic for most limited decks is make them waste their mana, right? Like, oh, they could have a they could have a destroy target attacking creature. Cool. Like I have all of these things in my hand. You know, they might not have it, but it's not that bad if they don't have it and I don't attack. Sure, I'm missing five damage, but I'll win the long game. You, you just can't think about that in aggressive decks. Now, sometimes you won't make the attack. Generally, that is because you're so far ahead that they just can't afford to keep the mana and you can just keep playing creatures and they're not, there's nothing that they can really do about that. But if you're not that far ahead, you know, you passing the turn is giving them a gift. All right, well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here because I want to want to move on to we've gone from the draft to deck building. And I do have a point here that I, I want to ask about, which which I touched on a little bit before, but is this idea of like, how do you decide how the pieces fit together? So let's say you've, you've made all the right picks in the draft and you're sitting down, you're looking at your pool of 45. H- how do you decide this ratio of creatures to spells to lands? The lands thing is the thing that always gets me because I feel like the difference between 17, 16 and 15 and I don't know, maybe 14 sometimes in aggro decks is pretty big and I never know when it's right to do what. And I feel like I always err too far on the side of too many lands because I'm, I'm I'm playing scared a little bit, I think, in that deck building portion. But I, I don't know if you've, you've 
you've got some some general tips for me and for our listeners. For sure, I have a fair amount to say about this, and I will say it is format dependent. As a as a kind of funny anecdote, I probably played fourteen lands a lot in Amonkhet, and I very rarely played above fifteen lands. But this was specifically an this that that format was an anomaly where you know I would draft decks with ten one drops. Right. And so I can function my entire game plan just on two lands. You know, I have maybe a couple threes and fours, but that's it. And flooding is so bad for aggro decks. Your your creatures tend not to be great mana sinks like, you know, late game decks have. Um, and so drawing that sixth land is the difference between winning and losing. So I, for the most part, play 17 or 16 lands in aggressive decks in most formats mm-hmm. where the deciding factor has to do with the ways to spend my mana, All right? Am I playing a six mana card? Am I playing, uh, what's it called, inescapable blaze? Sure, I'll play 17 lands. Like I want to be able to cast that card and I probably have some number of fives. But if I have no fives, no sixes, only a couple fours, and most of my cards don't have mana sinks attached to them, which isn't uncommon for aggressive decks to look like that, 17 lands, in my opinion, is for the most part going to be a mistake and you should play 16 lands. 15 lands is something you should do rarely um, just because like most aggressive decks in limited can't function on two lands. Once you think your deck can function on exactly two lands, really never needs the third land, then sure, go down to 15 lands. But it should two things should be noted about going down to 15 lands. Uh, one is that this means one of your colors is only going to have seven sources. And that is, you know, the, the difference between seven, eight, and eight is pretty big in terms of being able to cast your spells. And two, one of the ways you get ahead in aggressive decks in limited is you get to start double spelling before your opponent does since your cards are cheaper. So my turn four is often two two drops rather than a four drop. And that means that my removal spell is probably a little bit more potent to follow their four drop. Sure. But but also to talk about the the main question that you asked a bit ago and we got kind of distracted about this sort of, you know, not the lands, but the, the creatures, the spells, how to think about deck building. Um, the real important thing to discern while you're deck building is the role that combat tricks and removals play, how they're similar and how they're different. I have had combat tricks in my deck and removal spells in my sideboard plenty of time in, in aggressive decks. Uh, again, to reference a very aggressive format, Electrify was in the sideboard of most of my aggressive decks where I was playing combat tricks in Amonkhet um, and I believe, um, although I didn't play too much of M19, that was a thing that you maybe could do in the red-white decks in M19 as well, although I'm not as certain about that. The the real thing to understand about aggressive decks is early, early plays are important, sequencing is really important, and when both of those two things are important, the way that you capitalize on that the most is playing cheaper cards. Combat tricks are cheap, removal spells are expensive, both of them usually facilitate attacks and remove creatures when you are executing your game plan. And so there will be times where I won't have any combat tricks. I'll have three removal spells and I'll take a a combat trick over a removal spell because it is cheaper and I don't want too many expensive cards in my deck. So finding the balance of, you know, okay, let's say I have 15 creatures that gives me room for eight or nine spells. There's some number of auras, some number of combat tricks, some number of removal spells, and there's like a falter effect, but there's you're often not really honed in on one of them, and having good pieces to give yourself the ability to draw the right ones is important. So to that, when you're like constructing your deck before you're clicking submit and going into your 
first match, are you looking at the deck and going, all right, this is just an aggro deck. I'm like casting creatures, I'm beating down. Or do you feel like there's this nuance of, okay, well, this flavor of Boros that I'm about to submit is different than the last one I did. And that's because XYZ and my game plan is slightly different. Like, how are you looking at your deck and going, this is how I'm going to be approaching the following games? That's a very good question. I would say that the most common way that I try and answer that question is understanding how likely I am to uh, fall behind and when and how that would happen. And my goal is to play the game and build my deck in a manner to minimize the probability where that happens. For for an example, in Guilds of Ravnica, for Selesnya, sometimes uh, this means building your deck with uh, less powerful aggressive cards. Say, um, all right, there's a three mana make two one one life linkers, but that card can be important because let's say you don't think you're really going to be always out of the gates, but the the game is going to get into a race, right? This card can function as, okay, let's play this Rosemane Centaur while also being able to prey upon or cast another spell, but it also facilitates two chump blockers with lifelink such that you win a race. And so you can include things in your deck and understand your plan is not to, I want to kill them before they cast all of their spells and is they can cast all the spells that they want, but because I have these healer ha- healer's hawks and Barhelion patrols, you know, I will kill them with evasion uh, over time should they try and race me and they won't be able to win that race. Ben, this is all much more thinking than I usually do during a game of magic. I don't know how you're feeling. <laughs> it really is. It really is. I, every time I watch Ryan stream, I'm like, oh my God, he thinks so much more than I do. <laughs> but th- that brings me to, I think that the last section that I want to go over here, which is gameplay, which is, uh, I think probably where my, my next largest leak exists, which is, is in mulligan decisions with these decks. Mm. So we've been talking a lot about how, you know, you want to win the game by turn six or sort of have the game be in a state where you can win with a falter effect or a burn spell, that sort of thing uh, with your aggressive decks, which I think make mulligan decisions so much more important because let's say if you're trying to win by turn six, your opening seven is more than half the cards you're going to see in the game. And so it's going to dictate a lot of what you're going to get to do in that game of magic. And I often feel like my mulligan decisions are much more weighted in terms of like, I see this hand and I'm like, this hand represents so much of what I'm going to get to do in this game. And so I need to make sure it's exactly what I want to do. And if not, I should mulligan. But then I balance that with, well, I need as many resources in my opening hand as possible because I'm not going to draw that many cards. And so mulliganing also feels detrimental. That balance is really tough for me to weigh in on. And so I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about mulligans with aggressive decks. I would second that. The latter is the one I especially feel like mulliganing feels so bad because you're playing less power cards. So losing a card is really detrimental. Sure. I mean, mulliganing is one of the most important decisions in limited. If anyone is coming from constructed to limited, the advice that I would give them is stop mulliganing. Right. Just just don't do it. Just like, just don't mulligan. Sure. If you have zero lands, ship it. But in general, mulliganing in limited is so bad because you don't, even, even the late game decks tend not to have like all that many ways to, you know, really gain their value. It's not constructed. You're not playing mole drifters everywhere and all these battle cruiser, you know, mythics and stuff that like, sure, you know, if, I've I've mulliganed to to four and five and drawn my bomb mythic and I won because of it because that's that card is just capable of you know having that kind of impact on a game. But most limited decks and most you know ways games will play out don't come to that. So mulliganing and limited, just to preface all of this, is very bad, and I try and avoid it as much as possible. However, I do mulligan more aggressively 
with aggressive decks. And it's funny because the examples that you guys gave of, you know, you don't really have ways to recuperate cards and all of these things are reasons that I want to mulligan because I don't need that many cards. Sure, I'm playing 16 lands rather than 17 lands, which means I'm more likely to have more spells by a marginal amount, but it is relevant. Mm-hmm. And I can my deck can function on less lands, which makes mulliganing slightly better. Additionally, you know, a deck that is going for the late game and really trying to, you know, piece together, okay, I'm going to play something that impacts the board on turn four and do this and do that, right? Like those decks have to struggle with mulliganing because what if you don't hit your fourth land drop, right? If I mulligan to six and don't hit my fourth land drop with an aggro deck, I'd take that over a random seven any day. And so additionally, with your ability to kill so fast, you you don't always need all of the cards, right? That's not what your deck is built to do, right? Most of the time when you win with an aggressive deck, you do not have cards in hand. And so sure, having access to one less decreases the probability that you can kill them in the time frame that you want to. But I think that that is at least better situated for aggressive decks than it is for later game decks because of uh, the issue with not requiring as many lands. So let me let me lob this at you. Would you say that the statement is true or false? That the range of hands that you can keep with an aggressive deck is narrower than the range of hands you can keep with a controlling deck? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Um, I mean, to, to, give a, to give an example, I would consider... If I'm on the draw and I'm playing like a Boros aggro deck and I have four lands in the first sp- and three spells, but the first spell is a four draw, I really want to keep that hand because it's limited. But if my aggressive deck isn't doesn't have a play until turn four, is that really a game that I'm winning? Could I draw one? Sure. But you know that, that that's really risky. If I'm trying to end the game by turn six, turn seven, whenever, like that that's not going to happen with that hand. Whereas I don't even care what my three spells in hand really are with a normal limited deck. If I have four lands and three spells, I'm keeping that. But I think there's something to be said about the odds calculator that I feel like we often whip out when we're on stream that I think I often do with lands. But in those situations where it's like, well, I have a, this four drop, but like I don't then go, well, how many twos and threes do I have access to draw? And if you've got the kind of curve that you're talking about, you probably have a really strong number of outs that you're whatever, 75, 80% to draw by turn three. Like you're going to get a play before turn four there. Right. Like the, and then that is the reason to keep those hands. But the fact that it's that you have to consider that, whereas I really don't care what is in my deck. <laughs> yeah. If I get four lands, three spells in most decks is the reason why I think you end up mulliganing more because those hands are less keepable. And so when you're when you're playing an aggressive deck, do you just feel like that's something you know you're signing up for going in that you're going to have to mulligan hands more? Because like I think, you know, if you were to paint Ethan and I into a corner, we would prefer to play a deck that's not aggressive. And that's the number one reason for me, I think a lot of the time is just I feel like so much is dictated by my opening hand and mulliganing feels so bad, but I feel like I have to do it so much more. I feel like I have more options when I'm not playing a deck that's so aggressively slanted. And, and if you're signing up for that, like what what do you gain on the flip side of it by having that disadvantage? So you're saying like, and this is true when you add more mulligans, right, into the your gameplay, you're you know arguably adding more variance. Right? Like that is that is what's happening. You you end up more often having access to less cards, which is harder to win from, so on and so forth. The thing about aggro decks that other decks can do, but not as reliably, is punish opposing mulligans and punishing slow starts, right? Which, because it's limited, as as I as I alluded to, like 
you keep four lands, three spells any day. It doesn't really matter what those spells are for the most part in most of your limited decks. And if you're if that's the hand that you keep and your opponent just goes two drop, three drop, the probability you win that game is low. And so you gain edges in in that in that way, which does mitigate, in my opinion, the amount more you have to mulligan. All right. That makes sense. I'll buy it. Um, you've got a number of other points here in gameplay that you wanted to discuss that I'd, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on here, Ryan. Um, sure. So I already mentioned a, a bit about saving your tricks uh, before, um, but I, I do want to really hammer that home because the amount of times I've played against an aggressive deck, right? And my opponent is attacking their 2-2 into my 2-2. And I go snap off the block and pray they cast a trick, right? Like that is that is the the thing that I want the most is for them to use their trick there. All right, my two drops gone, I'll play another creature. Great. We're in the same situation and now the game is likely to go longer. There are, there are times where you just shouldn't, if you don't want to trade your two drop for my two drop and you have a trick in hand, just don't make the attack. Save your trick for the time it really facilitates extra damage across two turns and not just to sort of keep ahead on board and not keep committing to the board. So that's, that's the first thing that I, I see a lot of people make a mistake about and I wanted to point that out again. Another thing that um, I really excel at when piloting games, but something to be on the lookout for when piloting aggressive decks is when you should be chump attacking. This is slightly different than bluffing, although bluffing is important. But if my opponent has two three threes and I have two four fours and a two two, right? So I, I make the attack with everything right here. The reason I do that is because I'm fine with the double block where they take six and they lose a 3-3 three, three, and I lose my 4-4. Four, four. And I'm also kind of fine with them just eating my 2-2 two, two and taking 8 because 8 is so much damage and gives me the ability to really turn that corner with a combat trick or a falter effect next turn just to deal lethal. So planning your attacks a couple turns ahead based on the combat tricks in your hand, in your deck, is important for the success of aggressive decks. And I see people lose games because they go, oh, if I make... The attack with these two four fours, that's not really good. One I'll trade and one I'll deal four. I can't attack with this two two because it doesn't attack into three threes. When in reality, you can just turn them all sideways. One, make your opponent really think because they might be afraid, which is something that is awesome you get to capitalize on when you really play aggressively. But also you are just fine throwing away a resource for damage. As you know, we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the philosophy of fire, Th- that attack with that two two adds if they if they block it with a 3-3, three, three, adds four more damage, and I'm fine throwing that away for four damage. That makes sense. And so, you know, furthermore, when you keep, you know, going through these concepts of like, all right, attack, be aggressive, be aggressive, throw away your resources for damage, you will get there. You don't necessarily need all your cards. You're trying to count down from 20 to zero. Making your opponent have it is so important. The longer the game goes, the less likely you are to win. That's like just true for most aggro decks. And so when your opponent has Divine Verdict or some way to interact, oh, they could have a Flash creature. If you don't attack and they don't have it, you're basically just giving them a free free turn. And often you really can't do that unless you are in a position where you're so far ahead that the only way you can really lose the game is if you make the attack and they do have it. Right. I feel like Amaz has a similar mentality to you in that respect. Like, I think you both are aggro players at heart. And every time he Skypes into my stream, he's I was like super hyperbolic, but he's always just like, they don't have it. Attack. They don't have it. Why? Like, what are you talking about? They don't have it. Like that mentality is so hard for me to have. Like I live in a constant state of fear. In the way that we've been playing limited and limited content is created through, you know, you you guys love to dirtle. I love to dirtle too. I just prefer to attack. (laughs) But this sort of cultivates thought of they might have it. 
And if they have it, it is bad for me. And so I won't play into it. You have the luxury of doing that because you have more powerful cards in your deck. And you don't have this kind of luxury in aggressive decks. You just don't. Right. And that, I think, is if I can just get myself to make that mental shift, I think I'll be better off. It's just hard. It, it's really hard. It, it is definitely because then, then you do it and you walk into it and you're like, I'm never doing this again. This is the worst. <laughs> get up from your chair. I'm going to go take a walk. I even thought about it. It's like you've lived in my apartment, right? <laughs> so I think that brings me to the last point I have on this list, which is something that I noticed from you really from the start of like getting to know you through Twitch and and watching your streams, which is that you, I think, have one of the most amazing abilities to see lethal, to process combat damage over multiple turns, to see lines that lead you to zero. I mean, I remember when you were on our show last year when we talked about drafting with preferences and we, we sort of touched on this very, very slightly, but you were like, when you end the game at zero life and it happens sort of out of nowhere to your surprise, it's probably because your opponent planned that over multiple turns. And that's definitely a big takeaway that that I got from that episode. And that's a concept I've been able to apply or like really feel like I can track that to zero, but you just always see it. And even when I'm like, well, I'm going to win in a couple turns, you're like, well, you could just win right now. And you see it so quickly that skill you have to see combat damage or to be able to process combat damage is something I'm very impressed by. And I wonder if it's more of a talent or do you think that there is skill there that you've cultivated and can be taught? And if so, what sort of things can myself and our listeners do to get there? Uh, I I will agree that I I do think this is my best area of technical play. And the reason it is it it has gotten so good over time of playing this game uh, has to do with a sort of heuristic I use to improve at this game which I would suggest anyone do in game, you know, while you're in a game, you're watching a game, you're playing a game, whatever, ask yourself questions, right? Just explicitly create some dialogue with yourself. If my opponent has X, what happens? Or can I deal 20 damage this turn? Can I, my opponent is at six. Can I deal six? Can I only deal five? When you start looking at your opponent's life total, right? And the board, rather than just trying to figure out, okay, how blocks work and disregarding the damage you deal to them, which is often how you figure out attacks in most in most limited decks, you just want to make sure, okay, their attack back doesn't kill me. My attack doesn't throw away my creatures and it's still good. And the amount of damage you deal is less important and disagree with me if that's the case, but that has been my experience. When you really start considering, okay, but like, how much damage does this do? And you you figure out their blocks, you figure out, okay, they were at 13, they're going to take seven. You don't need to stop there. And this is something that I've been doing for a while now and has gotten me really good at seeing lethal over one turn or two turns is because now I know, okay, the board state looks like this, most likely based on the way I expect them to block. And they are now at this life total. What does my next turn look like? Oh, if that's the case, I shouldn't use take heart here Sorry, I shouldn't use Sure Strike here. I should use Take Heart because then next turn, that extra point from Sure Strike will get them to zero. Yeah, I think I look at attacks in terms of exchange of resources rather than a countdown to zero. I'm always looking at like, okay, well, I'm trading. I'll deal them four, they'll deal me three. That's a good exchange of resources. Or I'm trading my creature for their creature. That's an even exchange of resources. But I'm not often thinking like, yeah, that countdown to zero of like they're at seven and then the next turn they're at zero or over three turns that happens or whatever. I can definitely Im- improve that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And the more you the more you do it, the better you get at recognizing it. And that's one of the awesome things about playing this game is you learn so much. Can confirm as a music teacher, you get better with practice. <laughs> uh, so we do 
Just to round out the episode, we do have a couple questions from our hero tier patrons that I wanted to lob at you. Uh, Vendel asks, what should one be looking for in the top end of a curve for a limited aggro deck? So the best limited aggro decks don't have a top end. Savage. That's, That's the first thing. It's not common that you get a deck that good. Right. Again, most aggressive decks and limited are some form of mid-range. You're not playing many one drops, right? You're playing mostly two drops. It's why you'd rather have a two-two bear over hunted witness, right? Like the one drops we have access to don't affect the board in a in a powerful enough way to justify inclusion. But when you can get the deck that has, you know, multiple goblin banorettes, multiple healers hawks that really skews that early, I am interested in zero top end cards unless they are you know, a rare that's a bomb or some really, really impactful uncommon. However, that's not the world you live in the majority of the time. Most of the time your aggressive decks have, you know, eight two drops and you still might not play one on turn two and you do often want to include some five mana cards. So what to look for on the top end? In order to answer that question, you have to ask yourself, okay, what do I want the last card I cast out of my hand to look like? Because that's what your top end is. You've cast your early things if you're playing a five mana card in your aggressive deck, it's probably the last card out of your hand. When you have no cards in hand, it's really important for the game to be over. So haste is very important in top end threats, right? It's why uh, I think Barging Sergeant has sort of overperformed from expectation. That just haste and boom, you know, get them with, with a Barging Sergeant ends some number of games or puts your opponent in a position where they are so far behind that they have to play super defensively for the rest of the game, which lets you end up drawing your direct current or whatever to end end the game truly. Outside of, you know, these these haste threats, the last card you often want to be casting out of your hand is something like a cosmetronic wave, right? Something to deal those last points of damage. So I would say that that's the lens that you should be looking for in your top end, but I can't give you something too specific on top of that. No, I think that's a great answer. And our last question from one of our patrons is Neil wants to know, is it ever correct to pivot an aggro deck into mid-range slash stuff or should we all be firmly on plan? So like you start out, you think, you know, pack one, maybe midway through pack two, you're drafting this aggro deck. And then all of a sudden you think, eh, maybe I'm not going to quite get there. Should I just draft a normal deck instead? Is that something you find yourself doing? Sure. I think that um, a way a lot of people can improve is being more comfortable with changing their strategies in the middle of the draft, right? That's drafting the hard way, but that's the best way to do it. So I think that sometimes, you know, your aggressive deck's not panning out. It's the middle of pack two. And you're like, why why did this gird for battle not wheel? Other people shouldn't necessarily be interested in this. You know, maybe in pack three, I'm not going to wheel, I'm not going to wheel the two drops that I want or so on and so forth. And then you can skew your deck to be less low to the ground and have a little bit more of a punch to it because that's what most limited decks look like. And you're more likely to have success with that than an aggressive deck that does not come together. Yeah, that makes sense. Neil Neil also has a follow-up question. Is it okay to include a five, six, seven converted mana cost bomb in an aggro deck? I remember in Discord, we had a pretty big discussion about Light of the Legion in Boros. Do you think that's a good card in a Boros deck? I have played Light of the Legion in a Boros deck. I have also had it in my sideboard. So it is context dependent. You can absolutely play five and six mana cards. I would shy away from seven mana because in general, if you're playing your seventh land in an aggressive deck, you're losing. And so including including a card that really is only good if you're in one of the worst scenarios you can have with your aggressive deck, which is the fact that you've drawn seven lands, tends not to be where you want to be. But six lands, that's usually like, I would ideally stop at fifth, five, five lands in most of my aggressive decks, but um, I've included an inescapable blaze 
uh, before, and I've included a Light of the Legion before. It depends on the tier of the bomb, though. Like if we're talking, you know, Tetsumok, oh yeah, I'm playing that in my aggressive deck. That card, you know, sure. Will I? Will it be stuck in my hand some percentage of the time? Yeah. But you know what happens when it's not? Game's over. So I view I view those kinds of cards as like a bit of insurance. Um, sometimes the bomb's so good that you know what? Sure, you're mulliganing if you can't cast it, but if you cast it, you win the game. And you should almost always play those cards in limited decks. And the last question is, and I think I know the answer to this one, should we splash for an on-curve bomb? I'm on a firm no-splashing policy in my aggro decks. I don't know. Is that something you do often? What does on-curve bomb specifically mean? I would assume like a lower CMC, like three, four, five mana. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely almost never splashing a two-mana card unless it is a bomb when played on turn six. I think the thing to understand is if it is only a bomb when you're playing it on curve on turn three, turn four, absolutely not. Because then you're just making your deck less consistent to do it. However, I have splash in my aggro decks. It's actually something that I've done plenty of times in uh, in Ultimate Master so far. My red-green decks often splash white, but the reason for that is mostly travel preparations. I'll play like a Terramorphic Expanse in a Plains for the back half of it because I, I'm paying a small cost by a little bit less mana consistency with this planes, but the ability to pay the flashback cost on that card wins games. Uh, And so I will sort of skew my mana base a little bit, but I'm not trying to play multiple off-color basics really ever in an aggressive deck. Yeah, that makes sense to me, but it also hurts my heart to not splash. (laughs) Ryan, this has been so incredibly informative. I feel very thankful to have the opportunity to get to pick your brain for no other reason than I have a podcast. (laughs) I feel like this has just really leveled up a lot of things for me and made me think about things in a different way and made me less wary of drafting aggro decks in the future. Oh, I'm glad to help. So where can people uh, find you to see your great content, to pick your brain more on aggressive things or, or dirtle things? You know, Ryan, Ryan plays, plays both ends of the field here. Ryan, Ryan casts some pulses of Marasa. Oh, I love that card. We, I, I mean, I've played a three creature deck. I've trophied with a three creature deck in Ultimate Masters already. We definitely don't always attack, but I like attacking. It's my favorite form of card advantage. Well, you can find me um, writing articles for StarCityGames.com. Those usually go up on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 11 uh, a.m. Eastern Standard Time. However, they are on Thursdays once a week in December because I'm um, focusing on my thesis. Um, out And outside of that content, you can find me at uh, Ryan C. Sachs on Twitch and uh, R. C. Sachs on Twitter. Always feel free to shoot me any questions you got about an article, a pick and draft, or a general question. Always, always around, always available to answer. Yeah, Ryan, I think, is one of the most, if not the most, game person to respond to anything on Twitch, on Twitter, on Discord. I'm just like, he's just always game. He's like, yeah, I'll have this conversation right now. I love learning. All right. Well, yeah. Th- thank you again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Maybe we'll do it again. Yeah, it was it was a blast. Same time next year. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. And now it's time to wrap up our GRN treasure hunt. Thank you so much to everyone who participated. Zachrin, Spicy Manipulator, Z-Life 13, Wolf Law, Sane Mantis, Curzone, Generation D20, Vulcane, Draken, Sage Shadows, Inkstain, and White Faces all submitted achievements either through the email or on Twitter. And we had three people get five or more. So congratulations to Curzone, Generation D20, and Draken for locking up three draft sets, one for each of you. 
uh, for either this format or the next format. And we also want to announce our 15-hour stream, the date for that as a result of the Lords of Limited community crossing off all 15 of these achievements. Ethan and I are going to be streaming on December 26th, 9 a.m. Eastern time to midnight. I'll be taking the first shift. Ethan's got the second. So if you're sick of the in-laws or you just need a break from family or maybe you don't have Christmas plans, come hang out with us on the 26th. We'll be drafting all day. I'm sure there'll be some vintage cubes, some GRN and whatnot. Maybe even UMA will still be up. So a lot to look forward to. We hope to see you on December 26th. And again, congratulations to Curzone Generation D20 and Draken on the draft sets for the treasure hunt. If you want to get in touch with us directly, you can check us out. We are both streaming twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for me, twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome for Ben. We are under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Our second showdown video, Ultimate Masters Edition, thanks to the fine folks over at Patreon, is available on YouTube. Be sure to check that out as well. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. It is Gerd for Battle is better than Maniacal Rage, which is better than Candlelight Vigil. Can I get um, like a number of greater than signs you would put between each of those words? <laughs> so I would put not not would, actually asking, not actually asking. Oh, but I. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs>